0: The 8th BioCeuticals Research Symposium is going digital and will take place over four weekends from the 6th to the 28th of June 2020. For more information and to register your place, go to bioceuticals.com.au and click on the Education tab. Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield Cook and this is welcome to part two of Influencing Immunity with Amy Skilton. Now in part one we discussed some of the nutrients that were useful in combating infections, mainly viral but obviously also bacterial um, and obviously this is a very complex issue so there's only so much that we can cover but today we'll be discussing some of the herbal options we have at our disposal. So Amy welcome back to FX Medicine, how are you?
1: Oh, thank you so much, Andrew, for having me back. I'm so excited to be and, having sorry, this I conversation you with you again. You know, we got through so much in part one, but there's just still so much to share. So, uh, yeah. And,
0: and obviously, this is an extremely complex issue. Like, it, it's so hard to go into the biochemistry that, that happens in our immune system, which often gets oversimplified. You know, we talk about macrophages. We don't talk about, um, you know, uh, the influences upon the macrophage. We don't talk about the various white blood cells. What about the CD4, CD8, the T-rex, all of that sort of data? Da, da. So there's so much to cover. Mm. You can't do it in one podcast. But <laughs> we're going to give, hopefully, some the practitioners out there um, some options, some herbal options, and, and give them maybe some things to think about, especially in the current um situation that we have it um affecting Mm. us all
1: so yes absolutely
0: so where should we start um how about we start with the concept of stimulating the immune system versus Mm. modulating the immune system
1: yes that was a question that got submitted uh for the podcast last time Mm. and we didn't end up getting to it so i think it's worth having that conversation now especially because there's a lot of misinformation going around at the moment as well I've seen actually medical doctors suggesting that stimulating the immune system is equivalent to triggering an autoimmune disease now as you said it's very difficult to explain things succinctly in five seconds but Um, that is really a blatantly incorrect statement. Um, We know we can upregulate and downregulate immune function that is completely independent of the target of the immune function, whereas an autoimmune condition, of course, is when your immune system fails to recognize the tissue that is yours and begins to attack it. Now, if you have an autoimmune condition, and you're in a flare up, then herbs or pharmaceutical medications that stimulate white blood cell activity might not be the right choice for you in that moment, because you don't want to speed up the destruction of your own tissues. However, when you're fighting an infection, and obviously that aside, accelerating the rate at which your immune system can get on top of an infection is, of course, a good idea most of the time. Having said that, there are different ways of how you can, I guess, define stimulation of the immune system. And we did mention it in the context of vitamin C because vitamin C increases white blood cell activity. Having said that, I feel like, you know, maybe what you're really doing is providing more and more of the fuel that they need to do their job more and more efficiently, is that really stimulating them or are you ultimately just optimising? Like, or are you just cleaning them? up debris, yeah. Totally, yeah. totally. So it's, it's tricky to sort of um, peg that down in black and white. But if we use the term increases white blood cell activity um, as a measure of stimulating the immune system, then, yes, we can achieve that with a number of different herbs, which, of course, is just one part of tackling an infection. But that's what makes echinacea so popular because that is one of the properties that it has.
0: Yeah. Um, As we said, the immune system is so complex Mm. indeed, There was a beautiful thing that I saw the other day and it it just went into just some of the complexities of our immune system, including Mm -hmm. just the CD sets. I mean, when you look at the CD sets and therefore what interleukin involvement is involved, I mean, it's just it's. Mm
1: (laughs) wild I know it's wild far more
0: than we are exposed to by many companies and just this simplistic thing in fact even the you know th1 th2 seesaw that's so so 80s um 90s um that was by Dunstan, and it wasn't Mm. it was basically the limitation was due to the machinery if you like the equipment that he had to assay um we indeed now now know that um uh that seesaw is basically like a bendy seesaw with some roundabout's going in the background as well mm-hmm. uh, you can have th1 th2 comorbidities at the same time you can mm-hmm. also have this sort of thing going on this um well
1: i mean ultimately when it comes down to that you've got naive t cells that are being directed yeah. um yeah. to you've got th1 2 7 22 17 yeah. Yeah. th9 yeah. and It's not necessarily that, say, a Th2 or Th1 response uh, at the start is inappropriate either. Mm -hmm. However, when there's a loss of the promotion of regulatory T cells, which I like to call the peacekeepers of the immune system, you can't switch off um, these immune responses and that's when they can become aberrant and cause problems for people. And this, everybody, is why that when you're looking at using herbal medicine to support your immune system. It's important to see someone who's qualified in herbal medicine because they understand how to apply it and what's happening underneath the hood uh, inside your body. Yeah,
0: and uh, indeed, this is why that naturopathic idiom about treating the gut, first Mm. treat the gut, Mm. it still stands. Indeed, even with regards to um, uh, Mm. SARS-CoV-2, it is a gut based disease in many instances. Mm. I mean, we're seeing these incredible diversity of symptoms now, including rashes and vasculitis and all of that sort of thing. But importantly in so many people, it is gastrointestinal symptoms, which present first.
1: Yes and we know of course when you've got that inflammation presenting at the gut we start to see a degradation of the integrity of that tissue and translocation of lps and other endotoxins into the bloodstream which of course is partly responsible for the systemic effects that occur in the later stages of that condition and can of course happen in major infections of any other nature as well so that's probably, gosh, a fourth podcast <laughs> that we need to talk about how to drive regulatory T cells and keep inflammation under control. Um, but having said all of that, if your body can get on top of an infection quickly you then really drive down the risk of that perpetual inflammation starting to cause collateral damage in the body which is why I think you know you you really need to act at the first sign Mm. of anything and really take care of yourself um, at the first moment where you think "Uh oh I think I'm coming I might be coming down with something and that's where I think herbs are most effective yeah. Um, you, As soon as you intervene at the first sign of symptoms, you can sometimes avoid getting sick in the sense of being so unwell, you can't go to work or function as a human being. Um, and there's lots to choose from, yeah. isn't there?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I totally subscribe to everybody seeing somebody that that they trust with regards mm. to the choices, the appropriate choices um, for mm. your particular condition. But I, I I do subscribe to having a first aid kit in the background, and the echinacea mm. being the poster child of immunity, if you like, um, really is one of those yes. primary herbs that I I just always use. Indeed, I. Mm. very often use echinacea on its own straight off the bat when i get that first weird you know nasopharyngeal mm. irritation like that uh-oh mm. feeling um and i have yes. i really do hammer it now obviously that's mm. not without mm. its caveats if you if you have a an Uh, an allergy to the daisy family, or indeed, Mm. um, you know, you have a particular sensitivity to the particular tingly, burny sensation from the alkalamides from Echinacea, then obviously Mm. you've got to Mm. watch that and uh, choose some other herbs. So over to you, Mm. what sort of other herbs have we got?
1: Well, so I'm in the fan club of Echinacea too, and um, I do want to chat about why it is Western herbal medicine's go to. But we've just had a comment pop up from Graham. Thanks, yes. Graham. Graham is. Very good um, question. Yeah, saying rather than looking at stimulating the immune system when infection occurs, wouldn't it be better to make sure it's supported long term? Absolutely. And I'm pretty sure, Graham, you were in. The earlier podcast where we were talking about vitamin D, vitamin C, vitamin A, um, zinc, selenium and supporting your immune system by making sure it's nutritionally replete as well as avoiding the things that are going to suppress its function are 100% something people should really be looking at daily as a daily support but having said that you know I as a practitioner of almost 20 years I have got a wintertime protocol which I'm employing right now for obvious reasons but that doesn't make me bulletproof and depending on things like my stress levels or the virulence of whatever pathogens going around there are of course other things you can um, have in your cupboard just in case, which is exactly what I've done. I have, um, while well, everyone was pantry hoarding uh, toilet paper, <laughs> I was buying up all the uh, respiratory tract herbal um, tinctures, and we'll talk about those today. But I was, um, I was ready, and to be honest, I actually did go through. Um, symptoms uh, according to the timeline of the virus that's currently going around and I acted in accordance to that and was very grateful to have these you know I guess next level tools to to call on. Now the reason why echinacea is such a popular um, herb in Western herbal medicine, it is really the first thing that herbalists will often reach for when your body is fighting off infection. And there are, as you mentioned, there's a number of different components that we now understand the mechanisms of action for how it works. But ultimately, we know that echinacea is very high in natural antioxidants, and free radical damage is a is a serious secondary um, issue when it comes to immune responses. We also know some of those um, compounds inside the herb actually boost white blood cell activity meaning that they work to accelerate or support our immune system to work faster to fight off infection and so it's commonly utilized for respiratory tract infections but it's also commonly called on for infections of any nature and in fact the native americans in the us used it for snake bite mm. as well mm. to I don't support know how effective. Well, look, if I was bitten by a rattlesnake, I'd be calling on more than echinacea. Yeah. But um, I do love that they used that traditionally uh, with good results and I, I would probably chuck that down too, <laughs> quite honestly, well, I, if I, I was th- bitten I think, by a snake.
0: I think the um, the scenario there is what else did they have? You know, when mm. you've got nothing,
1: totally. something's
0: better than nothing. Um, yeah. So it, yeah. if you think historically, more people died who took echinacea than those who didn't. So that would yeah. have been why they chose that sort of thing. But, For sure. but in, in our modern era, get thee the hell to held yeah. hospital. Um,
1: <laughs> well, all right. Well, let's talk about respiratory tract infections, though, because yeah. we're certainly not recommending echinacea if you get bitten yeah. by a yeah. snake. Um, I've got a list here of some of the key studies that have been done on echinacea as they pertain to respiratory tract infections. You know, we're approaching June very quickly, so it's a a great time to be talking about this. So in a large randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial, there were 755 people who were administered either placebo or echinacea. And over this four-month period, those that took the echinacea had a – 53% 53% reduction in days experiencing symptoms of a respiratory tract infection. Now, as a medical herbalist, I'm not a big fan of giving echinacea as an ongoing herbal medicine. It's almost like flogging a horse. Eventually, it's going to get a little tired. So, oh, why? Why would, my would you? Pro- need to, yeah. Yeah. So it's my preference to sort of save it for in times of infection. But I will say if you're in an occupation that is being exposed to sick people a lot, you might work in retail like grocery. You might be a medical professional seeing clients in person. You might be a school teacher or, you know, even someone who, for example, a bus driver where you've got lots of people coming on and off the bus and you're being exposed. There could be an argument there for low dose echinacea reducing your risk. And I do want to say um, that in people who took echinacea like that over an eight-week period um it reduced their sick days by 30%. So there is evidence for its use in that way. But more specifically, when it comes to being ill, people recover twice as fast. Um, They get better much quicker. And I also want to say there was a pilot investigation uh, using uh, echinacea in over 1,500 people who were given either the flu vaccine, echinacea, or a combination of both, And looking at both symptoms and blood work, echinacea was more effective than the flu vaccine or the combo at reducing the illness incidence and length of illness. In fact, um, it was significantly so. And so there is evidence for its use like that too. Again, I would prefer that people really focus on the nutrients so the immune system can do the job it's programmed to do. But like you, I would always have a bottle in the cupboard yeah. just in case at that first sign of an itchy nose or a sore throat.
0: Yeah, I think, I, I mean, the interesting, the research around echinacea is very interesting, very controversial, mm. and certainly not without its issues. But when you look deeper into those people who have a, a respiratory infection, an ERTI, an upper respiratory tract infection, mm. um, you know, there's both positive both positive and negative Uh, papers on echinacea it's not just the dry and it's not Mm. just the dry root uh, because some of those studies are negative indeed one of the favorite um, products on the market um, had a negative trial in airline um, staff Mm -hmm. now let's Mm -hmm. think about this when we talked mentioning graham's question about nourishing the immune system these Mm. people are under constant stress physical mm. well, emotional, know- circadian stress so 100%, not to mention the radiation that's right <laughs> so, so you can't expect a little particularly a single herb to do mm. the job of wiping eradicating this virus which by the way mutates very quickly um mm-hmm. without looking and looking after and nourishing the body's innate defense systems i.e yep. rest You know, Mm -hmm. soups, nutrients, nourishment, you know, warmth, all of that sort of thing. So it's just Mm. we've got to be we've got to look further than what the study says. And and there is nothing that that is so strong that it can outweigh these Mm -hmm. very basic 10 A's of nursing your body back to health.
1: Mm. Not to mention that herbal medicine is not to be administered in the same way, generally speaking, like a pharmaceutical medicine would. And as Sharon's pointed okay. out in the chat, you know, um, uh, it is not that common to administer single herbs for the management of something like this. And you would. You would carefully choose other immune support herbs, things that um, directly supported the symptoms that that person might be experiencing and their own unique biochemistry. So which is why you see echinacea usually paired up or in a trio or even in a full herbal medicine combination with other plant medicines as well.
0: All right. So let's go on to some of those. Yes. Another one. I've got, to, I've got to pick on this olive leaf.
1: <laughs> so, all right, well, let's talk about olive leaf. Olive leaf is one that I would say a lot of people walk into pharmacies and health stores asking for. And whenever they, you know, are experiencing a cold or maybe something a little more aggressive than that. And, Olive leaf is an incredibly powerful anti-inflammatory and one of the reasons we feel so terrible when we're fighting off an infection is because of the inflammatory cytokines our own immune system is producing and these can cross the blood-brain barrier meaning it affects us not just physically but mentally and emotionally as well and they're not fun. They're certainly not pleasant and they are part of nature's way of a bringing attention to your um, predicament so that you do something about it and be the, the impact that they have on our brain makes us antisocial moody sensitive to light and sound sometimes tired and really just generally unenthused with life which is the whole point because it drives us back to our bed keeps us away from other people um, and making them sick and and actually forces us to take time out and recover so olive leaf is you know loved and adored because it makes people feel better quicker and I think there's a there's a real place for that Um, I'm I don't love the suppressing of symptoms to the point where you can operate like nothing's wrong because that will defeat the purpose of them entirely. But olive leaf does have a role to play there. There is something else about olive leaf, though, that I particularly like. Now, um, what's so special about 2020 and uh, being a herbalist in this time is we're getting more and more sensitive instruments, more and more advances in scientific analysis and we're beginning to understand more and more on a you know biochemistry level of how these herbs, do the job that they do and there is a very interesting mechanism that is attributed to the allurepene inside olive leaf as an actual antiviral itself so allurepene is a compound found inside olive leaf extract although it's a very very small amount and so if you're looking for this mechanism of action i would suggest you look for an olive leaf that has been standardized to allurepene Now, allurapine itself is not in and of itself antiviral. However, when it's taken up into, this, into our cells, which is exactly where viruses hide, up in the nucleus, there's an enzyme in our cell that converts that compound into calcium, melanolate, and allenolic acid, which becomes an antiviral compound inside the cell where the virus actually is. And I describe it to my clients like, pulling the pin out of a hand grenade. You actually, it's almost a Trojan horse, if you like, getting into the cell and acting upon the virus inside there. And so I think as we begin to understand that more and at what level it has that effect, um, it's going to really support its use for viral infections and I guess really continue to champion it for the use in respiratory tract infections um, for sure.
0: So, yeah. Um- one of the things that I learned that was really interesting, this was from Ian Brakespear's um, research, really interesting stuff, was mm. that uh, he assayed uh, products in the retail arena and products mm. in the practitioner arena. And Ian, forgive me if I get this wrong, but, but what happens is if uh, when olive leaf is aged or the more it's aged, the more conversion you get to this compound called hydroxytyrosol. And he found higher amounts Mm. in the practitioner uh, products available on the Australian market than the retail. Now, Mm. here's the question. Is the fresh olive leaf more potent than the aged? Is higher hydroxytyrosol bad? Question. I don't know the answer to that question, <laughs> but, but it was well, really is... an interesting point that came out of it. Um, I yeah, think, I think, I mean, to me, what's telling is we certainly need to look into the complexity of the herbs, it's not down to one standardized yeah. component. We yes, really absolutely. need to refresh our memory that herbs are not drugs. If you want mm. to go drugs, use drugs. Uh-huh. Yeah,
1: I agree. I mean, I, it's, it's a real balancing act as a practitioner, isn't it? Um, you know, we've got hundreds, sometimes thousands of years of that herbal medicine being used in a particular way, prepared in a particular way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's a really nice lineage to rest upon and Mm -hmm. rely upon. Um, But I also embrace that in this day and age, we can look inside a plant and really identify all of its incredible components and experiment and actually see what they do. And in some cases, you know, we may even find better ways of preparing, growing, harvesting, producing, administering um, herbal medicines that make them even more powerful. And that's really exciting. But I think what some people forget is science doesn't dictate what is so yeah. it seeks to explain what is so and so um whilst well i said. yeah and and i you know i'm really enjoying watching science explain yeah. what we already know to be true about herbal medicines over and over again and it's really exciting to be able to actually understand the plant a bit deeper and the way it works with our own biochemistry. But just because a study hasn't been done on this or we don't quite understand that doesn't mean it isn't the case until science says so. Um, and so I think in practice, you have to really work on your own, uh, what we know traditionally, what science is informing us or sharing with us, um, what we're seeing in practice and how our patients are responding and just really using our, what our own knowledge um, as well, to be able to really personalise prescriptions for people.
0: You know, one thing that I just thought of with regards to olive leaf, and it certainly suits the scenario, and I'm not saying that this is a treatment, there is no (laughs) evidence on this treatment, but I think isn't it very interesting that olive leaf works mainly as an antihypertensive?
1: Yes. What's the major
0: presenting comorbidity with the current immune issue mm -hmm,
1: worldwide? mm -hmm. Yeah, 100%. Yep. Very interesting. I wonder how Um, it works. (laughs) I wonder if it's got anything to do with age two. Yeah, that's a worthy line of investigation. Mm. And I think um, given that uh, what's going around at the moment is quite complex, there's a lot that has yet to be explained because everyone's in crisis mode trying to stop people dying. Um, But those are the questions that need to be asked when we have got the time and the space to actually take a look at those mechanisms. Um, And I think that's a very worthy line of investigation. The other thing I want to share about Olive Leaf is it's also supportive for fever. It's antipyretic, yes. and so that's also an important consideration if you're choosing to include it in a herbal formula for somebody as well.
0: Okay, so we're going to be talking about time a little bit later on, and and so yes. when we're talking about combining these herbs, one's an antipyretic, mm. and time is used to enhance sweating. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we how do we modulate that? Let's bring it up now.
1: Well, so. From a Western herbal medicine perspective, um, there isn't a clash there using those two herbs. Ultimately, yeah, those two herbs are providing lots of different properties and ultimately supporting the immune system to do its job. And from a naturopathic point of view, we don't consider fever to be a problem or something that should be uh, immediately addressed and shifted. Now, we know obviously dehydration Um, is a thing that needs to be managed. We also know that the comfort of the patient is incredibly important. And so um, modulating that for patient comfort is also really important. And of course, prolonged, protracted, and very high fevers can bring um, some complications with it as well. So it does need to be managed very carefully. But the increase in temperature increases the immune system activity it's a way of actually driving up immune function and your body trying to accelerate the rate at which it gets on top of this infection so removing it is counterproductive having said that um, in order to keep the body comfortable diaphoretics that help with sweating to actually uh, maintain that fine balance between i guess for want of a better term, a healthy fever versus an unhealthy fever um, is a way of allowing the body to keep getting on with its job without too much interference, but keeping the patient more comfortable. And certainly if someone's presenting um, with a fever and they're feeling very cold, they're shivering, very uncomfortable, then, you know, there are other obviously recommendations you can make too, but herbs that address that are certainly important to include in the formulation
0: as well. You know, really interesting when you consider these these, uh, points uh, of management, and it's really interesting when we get caught up in excitement about something and Mm. we forget where it originated from. And in all cases, if you think about diaphoretics, how do you manage a fever? Mm. um, Then diaphoretics are useful, but obviously that's losing fluid. So hydration. You you go back to these really basic ten A's, you know, hydration, Mm -hmm. rest. (laughs) avoiding the the it's
1: it's not glamorous and I think um, you know it doesn't have the same glamour as a fancy pharmaceutical drug with a you know powerful instrument with a you know a single action that is just like flipping a switch um, it also requires more effort than popping a pill you know you've got to line yourself up with fluids electrolytes you're going to be sweating away which might mean changing the sheets and and including a waterproof you know mattress cover Big for guy. the time being and yeah. and it means maybe a few days at home feeling pretty ordinary or less than ordinary and We live in a society in a time where, you know, the badge of busy is is something people still um, lord over each other and that is a real problem because um, it doesn't suit our physiology. Um, I'm just going to answer a question here. Sharon's asked about high temperature in children, particularly young children. Absolutely. Now, children, um, what I... Know to be true, is children can go down with infection very, very fast. They can also recover a lot quicker than adults, which means they have to be watched much more closely by, you know, their parents or their caregivers um, in conjunction with whoever's providing the medical care. But it's really old fashioned and not in line with the evidence to treat a fever in a child with something like paracetamol. And in fact, Finally, allopathia catching up. I lectured at a conference uh, for one of the large pharmacy chains in February, and uh, they were specifically saying, we do not recommend you give baby pharmaceuticals or child pharmaceuticals to lower a fever, except in extreme cases, the evidence is not there. And in fact, what we also know to be true is that in doing so, you disable a key arm of their immune system by reducing their glutathione status, which is actually harmful. Now, obviously, a clinician always has to make the right call for the child that they're treating. Um, However, more often than not, the evidence does not support that as a mode of action. And, in fact, it can be harmful. And in naturopathic medicine, the first rule is do no harm. And so it's not something that we recommend. Yes, monitor it very tightly. And, and some of the key um, recommendations around what way you choose is to look At the child. Now, it's normal for a human, big or small, to go off their food um, when they are feeling unwell. That's a way of the body conserving energy and taking pressure off the gut and the immune system down there to deal with what's going on. It's normal to feel more tired and be resting more. But the key in children is to look for their responsiveness. Are they still alert? Are they still um, engaged? If they're starting to look, obviously, dehy- dehydration in children is probably the biggest risk, to be honest. So, making them electrolyte based ice blocks or um, warm broths if they're looking for warmer fluids um, and monitoring them closely is key. But if they start to get listless and less responsive, their consciousness level starts to be looking like they're sort of heading on the way out. That's when you need to act. But outside of that, um, the evidence is not there to support the administration of pharmaceuticals for bringing down fever. It, and if, in the event you have to do that, sorry to cut yeah, you off, Andrew, a little roll here, but give give glutathione. Yeah, it it doesn't mean you know it's it's you know you don't ha- it's not a hard and fast rule not to do it either. Yeah. If you feel as a clinician. Or as a parent that you are what you know your child best, if you're watching them and you don't like how things look and you feel like that is the best course of action, just know you can shore up the, I suppose, negative impact that it's having by giving something like glutathione or N-acetylcysteine um, to just balance out um, the collateral damage, or, if you like.
0: Or indeed in a child whey. Mm. I mean, uh, if you give good whey, undenatured whey that still has the Mm. alpha lactalbumins and the gamma globulins, things like that intact, then that has been shown uh, to increase glutathione. And so if you think about a food that can be used with kids that they will take, because it tastes reasonably Mm. nice, whey. Mm. And you can get some beautifully... Um, formulated ways out there that aren't sweetened with nasty so just be careful about that Um, the other thing is of course with temperature I I mean I'm not a fan of not bringing down a temperature I'm a fan of managing a temperature Uh, but what's interesting to me is that I was reading a paper just the other day about this uh, and Mm. it was what do uh, medical professionals including specialists and GPs feel about temperature, and a lot of them actually thought unduly that um, it had dire consequences. Whereas what's been shown is that the vast majority of kids, even if they fit, don't have long-lasting problems with that. Having said that, having said mm-hmm. that, uh, it would be an extremely scary thing to witness, particularly if you're a parent. I, I'm, I'm of a, I'm of a, a parental. Uh, opinion to to manage the fever and as you say hydration interestingly sitting a child in a hot bath to bring out erythema um, was Mm. i found very useful as a parent and indeed when the temperature was run away our kids hated Mm. this but we did it but what we did is we put them into Mm -hmm. a lovely hot bath not not too hot Mm. but a warm bath very warm Mm -hmm. And then we took them out and put them in front of a fan and held them and they screamed. They mm. did not like it, but boy, did it drop that fever. Now, yeah. I take yeah. your point. I totally take your point about, <laughs> about managing a fever and not use, not um, suppressing a fever. I'm, I'm yes. well versed from this naturopath that used to, as you say, put a, uh, a plastic Mac down on his bed. And mm-hmm. manage the sweating of his fever with adequate hydration and things like that. But mm-hmm. that is somebody mm-hmm. who knows what to do when things occur, not yes. for the lay person. So I defer to what real practitioner says.
1: Yeah. And and it also depends on, you know, does the child have other health conditions that you might need to be mindful of? How equipped does the appa- apparent parent appear to be to, yes. to manage yes. it? Um, the stress of a parent is um is you know definitely something that also needs managing Mm. and no one wants their child to have a fit so if you can avoid it great Uh, but it is nice that parents know that for the most part it doesn't actually end up causing any long-term challenges um there's a question here from helene about glutathione would you include it in the immune program There's a real balancing act when it comes to recommending nutrients and herbs and other interventions. And, you know, people, not many people have an unlimited financial budget and, um, you know, I've never met a supplement I didn't love, but I also have a limit on how many things I'm willing to swallow in a day. And so you've got to sort of draw the line and think, right, what are my primary recommendations? What are my secondary recommendations? What are my tertiary recommendations? And, If I was treating, say, an adult for, um, you know, common wintertime lurgy, um, if they weren't already on a nutrient protocol of vitamin A, D, C, zinc, selenium, that would be the first thing that I would look at. And then I would look at a herbal mixture specific to them. Glutathione, I would love to put that in there too, but it's not often something I include in that initial recommendation because it's just another thing. Now, if you've done... Uh, well, yeah, that doesn't help. Um, now, I actually have a genetic polymorphism that impacts my ability to produce glutathione, and that means I'm much more vulnerable to um, ending up with not enough in my system. And so that is something, liposomal glutathione, I always have it in my fridge. And if I knew that about the person that I was treating, maybe I would prioritize glutathione a bit more. Um, But it really comes down to the individual and it and it isn't often something that I would include. Now, if it was for a child and let's say I'd been treating them for a while and I knew that whenever they got a cold or some virus that they always had a very high temperature, maybe they'd fitted in the past, um, then yes, this is something I would include. And for the family's sake, it might be something I would say, all right, well, then, you know, if you notice that get to this point or you notice the child is starting to fade away a little bit in terms of energy and vitality then you can use something to address the fever and use this as well. So it really does depend on the person you're caring for and a number of factors. But if you have got the budget for it and you're happy to take anything and everything, yes, I would include that in your um in your protocol.
0: My opinion, because of taste and because I'm a male WIMP. Why, <laughs>
1: <Yes.
0: why? laughs>
1: <laughs> use whey or use a yes. capsule yeah. or, you know, there's we lots of actually. Um, Adults, take
0: yeah. um take let's, let's move on, Amy, because again, we're going to run out of time and we've gotten back onto nutrients. So more herbs. Um, uh, andrographis. Now, andrographis, yes. andrographis, I remember reared its head and sort of became popular um, when mm. I was in practice. And, and I was extremely hesitant, I must say, to embrace yeah. andrographis. And I still, I still use it with certain um, not hesitations, but um, only in certain instances. And the reason is because of its common name. So let's talk about Andrographis for a tick.
1: Yes. So. When it comes to herbs, um, just like with pharmaceutical medications, you've got um, different safety profiles. You've got different strengths and activity levels. And whilst andrographis doesn't have a narrow therapeutic index, like something like poke root does, for example, when you look at it in the context of a traditional Chinese medicine model, it is an extreme herb. Um, We were talking earlier and I said it's like the mic mike tyson of uh, respiratory tract herbs it is a heavy heavy hitter and anytime you choose to employ a herb that has very powerful activity and in this case um it you know it sits on the extreme of the yang scale in traditional chinese medicine and it's extremely bitter the more away from the center of that model you get, the more it has the potential to unbalance somebody. And I know that sounds very kind of esoteric, but we're we're going somewhere with this. And, and where I'm going with that is, is whenever you're looking at herbs that have a very aggressive action, the risk for unusual responses starts to increase quite rapidly. And because andrographis has got uh, very solid evidence and solid use, it's called Indian echinacea, by the way, um, for respiratory tract infections, it's very popular. And for the people that it suits, they love it. And, you know, since it burst onto the scene since 2006, there's been, you know, lots of celebrities that tout its benefits and the people who love it are just like, you know, um, president of the VIP club But there are some people that it has an undesirable response in. And I do want to talk about um, how useful it is for upper respiratory tract infections. But before we dive into that, I just want to warn people that it just doesn't always suit everyone. Now, number one, because it is an extremely bitter herb it has an aggressive stimulating effect on our bitter receptors. And as a result, it can change the way things taste and therefore also smell. And for some people, everything just tastes like dirt, (laughs) which is not fun. It's not fun. And when things don't smell and taste right, it can be very distressing. And so for anyone who experiences that response to andrographis. Stop taking it immediately. Um, and this is not the herb for you next time you want to tackle a respiratory tract infection for yourself. Um, there's also an even smaller um, subset of people who are allergic to it and can experience that, allergic. Yeah. yeah. Um, what have you seen?
0: Oh, well, it was actually a friend of mine who um, um, I'll, I'll try and simplify the story, but it was uh, the first. It wasn't her. It was a, a colleague of hers. First time they took mm. something with andrographis in it, they had uh, uh, a slight wheezing, and mm. quizzically, uh, this certain person took it again, oh. <laughs> even though this friend of mine said that's not for you. Um, don't do this. Oops. Yeah. So it was. Uh, I, I mean, anyway. Um, but this friend yeah, of right. mine so said she this to... is not for you. Don't take it. And this other person mm. took it again. Mm. Uh, and ended so, up in a hospital
1: yeah <laughs> look you can be allergic to anything right skincare Good. products foods herbal medicines pharmaceutical medications things like latex found in you know um, band-aids for instance and so if you're taking it for the first time in fact sometimes it doesn't always happen the first time although it's more commonly that it does if you experience any allergy type symptoms so you're getting hives itchy um, red wheezy um, sneezy um, anything like that um, you need to get medical attention immediately and do not take it again because typically what will happen, even though it might not end up in full anaphylactic shock on that first occasion, if you persistently take it, that's likely where it's going to conclude for you. I
0: think the important point here is to see your practitioner. I mean, if if nothing else drives this home, it is Mm. this example.
1: Yes, Um, yes. Yeah, 100%. Um, and I think um, it's, you know, because it is so popular, people rave about it. This, this might well be why your friends thought, oh, I'll give it another go and just see if it happens again. Um, but medically speaking, that is that is absolutely not uh, what our advice would be. But for those that can tolerate it, um, it makes an excellent choice for upper respiratory tract infections. There's been a number of double-blind clinical trials that have shown it reduces the symptoms of Um, respiratory tract infections including sore throat, mucus, coughing, runny nose um, and you know, this makes it a very powerful instrument when you're fighting off infection. And they now also understand that it improves antibody responses and also phagocytosis by macrophages, meaning you have a reduced risk potentially of secondary bacterial infections. And, you know, that's all kind of wrapped up in a beautiful bow of immune stimulation as well. So, It's why it's so popular for the people who absolutely love it because it works very, very well. You
0: know what? I'm going to ask our viewers out there to give their opinion Mm. um, between Mm -hmm. tableted versus liquid versions of Andrographis, being (laughs) being the king of bitters. Do they find actually that it has a better effect um, if they give it in a liquid form, albeit it's going to taste disgusting? And that's the issue Mm. I have. I I have an aversion to it. A real physical aversion to it um, in too yeah. high dose, but um, and I've normally got a cast iron gut, so it's really weird. But anyway, um, I'd mm-hmm. love your opinion out there. What's your your clinical opinion of the tableted versus the liquid herbs? Mm-hmm. I've got to say, although tableted versions are very popular and yeah. they have their place, I yep. I always think about, as you mentioned, the patient's symptom picture changing.
1: And yeah. this
0: is why I love herbal medicines in the liquid form so much because you can mm. change that formula as their patient um, picture changes. And yes. and I just think this is one of the beauties of liquid herbs for me.
1: Oh, I, I'm enamoured with, you yeah. know, being able to personally formulate for people as well. Yeah. Um, not to mention that, you know, from an energetic point of view, I and I imagine a lot of herbalists would agree with me, the vitality in a tincture, there's a level of vitality that you can't get in a tablet. Um, And, look, I I absolutely use and recommend tableted herbal medicines quite regularly, and they're great. Um, But if I was given the exact same choice, tablet or liquid, um, I'd go for liquid, absolutely. They're also absorbed a bit quicker, which means you feel better faster. And in the case of infection, that's always a win in my book. Yeah. and if I if um, I had the
0: option, I was all I would always add um, a, yes. a liquid formula to a tablet, so that, that at least I could vary this. You know? Yeah,
1: great. Yeah. That's a great idea. Yeah, very, a, a wonderful way to administer that. And and I guess, you know, we sort of covered those key things that are often selected for cold and flu. But when you're looking at the whole patient, when you've got a liquid um, formulation that you can, you know, craft for them, you can add other herbs yeah. that support lung repair that work as expectorants bronchodilators um and you know we've got a lot of great uh herbs to choose from haven't yeah. we uh, well, uh,
0: indeed and you know like being a fan of licorice and ginger um mm-hmm. i've <laughs> i've very often combined both licorice and ginger and it certainly mm. suits urtis But what Mm -hmm. I love about ginger is that it gives that warming, soothing sort of feeling to the nasopharynx, Mm -hmm. Um, but also helps in the dispersion of the herbs. What's interesting to me is something I found out about uh, a little bit over a year ago, and that is that Mm -hmm. ginger talks directly to the genes of your microbes. Gut-based diseases, anyone? Mm
1: -hmm, mm -hmm. Gut-based
0: respiratory infections, anyone? so it, it just to me it's really interesting how important some of these you know sidelined herbs are and you don't need a lot of ginger I mean no I would I would halve the dose normally recommend it just put a little <laughs> tiny bit in
1: yeah 100 yeah. anyway
0: um so there's so many herbs to cover. there's so little time um no. what about herbs even even two herbs that have got um uh Products on the Australian market that are of S2, that is mm. pharmacist-only medicines, and that's pelargonium mm. and elderberry. Mm. Let's talk about those for a t-
1: Yes. Well, so elderberry, um, I, I, I guess in the context of taste, is the exact opposite of andrographis. Um, it's wow. like a yummy little <laughs> drink. <laughs> and it's really popular for kids for that reason, and it's a great antiviral herb on its own. It's brilliant. Um, but in the context of a well-put-together formula, it's just such a hero in there as well. Um, and, of course, it works very well in big kids too. Um, but palagonium is another heavy hitter although less extreme than andrographis which i would certainly look to employ particularly when you've got chesty stuff going on um wild ivy is another good one and again that's such a powerful um cough uh, yeah. herb yeah. classic cough herb that that's often sold yeah. in pharmacies too as a single herb um but i'm obviously more of a fan of including those herbs in a formulation that you know does multiple things for someone and can i just talk about for a moment my favorite herb to include for lung stuff depends what it is um, of course you can <laughs> so my favorite herb of all time it's a pun coming here is time
0: oh, right. <laughs> i was scrabbling there
1: Sorry. that was so cringy um <laughs> Sorry, guys, I couldn't resist. I've got to spice up the Tuesday somehow. Um, Thyme is obviously a very popular culinary herb. It's something that I always include in my germ juice formulation, which is like another sort of cold remedy that I make for myself and um, clients. But the thing with thyme is thyme is a very rich source of thyme oil, which is a volatile oil or an essential oil. And... Anything, all of the essential oils or volatile oils when swallowed are absorbed across the stomach lining, just like alcohol, which means they get into the system very quickly. Now, obviously, anything that we ingest is metabolized in some way and oftentimes is moved out of the body through phase one or phase two or phase three detoxification. And in the case of thyme oil, it is metabolized and eliminated by phase one enzymes in the lung tissue. Now, what this means is it's then evaporated up and out and exhaled through the lungs. Now, naturopathically speaking, we recommend medicated steam inhalations quite regularly, you know, head over the, you know, hot bowl of water. And we add in, you know, anti-inflammatory or antimicrobial combination of essential oils and then inhale them deeply into the lungs to soothe the tissue and also effectively disinfect the lungs for want of a more sophisticated term. Now, when you ingest thyme as a herb, it's like this reverse, you know, really um, shower for your lungs, and you're actually exhaling thyme oil. You can smell it on the breath of anyone who's taken it. And, you know, it's antitussive, so it soothes um, soothes the respiratory tract, reduces spasmodic coughing. It's antimicrobial. Um, it's also a very gentle bronchodilator, which we need when you've got, you know, mucus clogging up your airways. And I just... Just think it's brilliant. Now, if you're a mum or dad at home listening, you can simply add fresh time to your dinner meal, for example, or you can pour some um boiled water that's cooled a little bit over it and make a thyme and manuka honey and ginger tea um, and achieve you know a similar effect I just think it's such a legendary Absolutely. plant that's, at
0: this, that's really at this interesting time. about the inside out rather than just inhaling things um, yeah, yeah. okay I, I, I'm sorry I can't leave this one out you're talking about your favorite I'm going to talk about mine before I do that the polls yes. are in that seems like it's a dead heat between tablets and liquids anyway. Um, so, so, uh, uh, holy basil, something that I spoke to professor Mark Cohen about, and we yes. started off on one topic and ended off just talking about holy basil. And this is, this has become a favorite herb of mine because it works on so many, uh, axes. It's not just an yep. immune issue, but it's also an adaptogen. And yet it's very mm. safe to use in infections. So mm. let's talk about that just for a minute. We've only got nine nine minutes or what, eight minutes to go, so we've got to hurry things up.
1: Yeah. Tell me Tell me your initial thoughts.
0: Well, the thing that I like about it is that it's not just an adaptant, but it's also a great immune uh, modulatory mm. herb. Um, yes. It's all, it also has mood-altering effects. So mm. it it works on this sort of three-way axis, um, probably more. I'm probably being oversimplistic so that oh. it helps in the um, the sickness syndrome, it helps recover from yep. infections and inflammation, but it also helps stave off mm. future infections as well. It's a beautiful herb. Yeah. Um, what got me about Mark, and I've tried twice, three times now, to grow the damn yeah. herb, and I must have got bodgy seeds. Uh, nothing, not one thing has grown. So, oh. so I have to try again, because Mark talks about having this as sort of a, a mini gift, like a little plant that you can gift to people. Yeah. Um and yes. I, I love that that notion of giving this sort of beautiful herb that you can give mm. to people. And they can just take two or three leaves and chew on them. Yeah. Quite safe. So. Make sure you've got the right plant. Um yes. <laughs> and uh and uh and yeah it's it's like it's just this lovely immune gift that you can give to your friends.
1: Well and this is the thing. This is where you know it comes down to using food as medicine yeah. as well and you can empower patient time, um, garlic, ginger, you know, you can empower people to implement and include these things as well as everything there else they're doing. And something like holy basil, you can chop up finely and put through stir fries, or you can use it through salads. You can then use it as a tea. It's actually readily available as a herbal tea from the supermarket, either on Mm -hmm. its own. I've got one in combination with ginger cinnamon, um, it's almost like a bit of a chai. And it's beautiful, warming, astringent, perfect for this time of year. Um, so it's certainly a great herb. Obviously, lung tonics have their place. Um, certain herbs like golden seal are really powerful as well. Elecampane um, and melane are popular for lung support. And there's also a few um, specific ones you might drop in based on symptomatology so you know wild cherry bark for um, hacking coughs um, you might look at for dry tickly coughs things like marshmallow um, or if you've got something that's more chesty and heavy then wild ivy would be perfect too and um, herein lies the beauty of obviously personalized medicine when it comes comes to herbs and what that means as you said before often when you get sick the symptoms you have at the start can shift a little bit Mm, through the process Mm. and the support you might be getting at the beginning um, your needs are different you know four or five days down the track so it allows you as a herbalist to actually really tweak things to support someone you know almost on a day-to-day basis or certainly on a week-to-week basis depending on how they're presenting
0: there's so much more obviously to to cover Really, really, really quickly. Um, yes. What about lymphatic herbs? Now we even haven't even discussed um, medicinal mushrooms, which I really wanted to discuss. Um, so <laughs> I'm going to ask now. Sorry, guys, yeah. but this is from me. Um, would you Would you be amenable to coming back and having a part three uh, of supporting our immunity if we discuss medicinal <laughs> mushrooms?
1: For you, Andrew, of course, of course. (laughs) I would never deny you that. I know how much you love them and you've got some really incredible personal experience with them too, which I know everyone's going to love hearing about. Um, So, yes, let's park that for next time. Cool. Okay. So (laughs) lymphatic. So in closing, lymphatic herbs. So the lymphatic system... There's a number of different roles the lymphatic system plays in the body, but in one sense it's a bit like the sewage system of the body, and that's such a terrible way to put it because it does such an incredibly important job. But anytime it's overloaded or your immune system is weighed down, you can see problems show up there, and that can be in lymphatic congestion, which presents any number of ways, but some common presentations in the context of what we're talking about. It's things like tonsillitis, you know, swollen adenoids, um, things like that. And if that's what's showing up for somebody, there are some very specific herbs that are excellent traditional choices to address those things. And you don't necessarily have to go to a herbist, herbalist for these things. Like, for example, cleavers is readily available. You can buy it in herbal tea from just about anywhere. You can make um, even a cold, um, uh, what's the word? not um, an infusion well yeah i guess it's a cold infusion you can even finely chop it and use it in salads and stir fries but cleavers is one of those herbs you can use to really help to clean out the lymphatics um, but as a herbalist probably my favorite one is poke root or phytolacca americana now this is not something that you should if you're not a medical herbalist or a naturopath um, you would ever self-administer because the therapeutic index is very very low A tiny bit is really good and a tiny bit more could potentially be lethal. And so this is something that should only ever be dispensed by someone who's trained in it. However, it is a potent little herb that is really traditionally used for pockets of infection of any kind. Now, um, naturopaths have used it for things like boils, tonsillitis, Um, dental abscesses, anywhere there's like this tiny little trapped pocket of infection. I love it for acne, cystic acne for that reason. Um, It just really helps the immune system to clear that out a little more efficiently. But when it comes to respiratory tract infections, you can see Um, tonsils and adenoids uh, become inflamed and swollen and congested and that's where I would think of using herbs like that to support the patient to recover
0: yeah poke poke root's got a bad rap because in nature where Mm -hmm. uh, particularly those in in uh, Europe used to go out on the onto the hillside and have a picnic Mm -hmm. and pick some poke root the phyto lacquer forgive me I thought it was decandra I don't like a well, there's, there's several, yeah,
1: there's, there's several, several different... Several
0: species. Um, so yeah. the problem is that um, uh, some of the uh, constituents of the herb can vary by uh, like a factor of 10 or 20. So yes. do you get the small amount of the emetic or do you get the massive amount of the emetic? And it's yeah. landed people mm. in hospitals. So therefore, it's got a bad rap. Mm. But when you're talking about yeah. a herbal medicine that's got many plants mixed into one, uh, mixed yep. into one mark and for one fluid extract from that mark, then obviously that's mm. going to be balanced out. Um, yeah. you now I take the point about um, safety, but I mean certainly you know th- there is a leeway that is allowed if you like um, with professional oversight. Um, mm-hmm. But you know one herb we didn't uh, cover, and that is uh, one of the um, one of the adaptogenic herbs or adaptogens. Um, this astragalus.
1: Oh yes, now, we have
0: to talk about We that. need to cover this because there's a lot of myths. Now, <clears throat> we've got one minute left. Please guys, forgive us. We are going to go a little bit over because we would like to include you in a couple of questions. But just a quick oh, yeah. little thing about astragalus, because mm. there was this myth that went round about never using it in an acute infection. And I think that's this mm. Western bastardization of an extremely yeah. complex system of medicine, the TCM.
1: So, yes. So Western herbal medicine and traditional Chinese medicine um, have a lot in common, but also um, there are certain applications that are quite different. And there is evidence that shows astragalus increases white blood cell production. Now we know in times of good health, if you do a white blood cell count, there is a reference range that's considered to be healthy and normal. And it's very natural and normal and healthy that when a pathogen presents itself, whether that's a virus, bacteria, fungi, protozoa, parasite, whatever, we'll see a particular type of white blood cell count go up, which tells us, Oh, that person's battling a virus right now or a bacteria or a fungi fungal infection. And so the, the thinking behind saying you shouldn't use it in acute infection is in that initial immune response where the white blood cell count is greatly upregulated. We don't want to be sort of adding fuel to the fire, especially if the body's doing the job properly. However, The immune system can get a little worn out, just like we talk about adrenal fatigue. We can talk about immune fatigue and we can see an initial rise in what white blood cell count go up. But then if the immune system fails to get on top of the infection and we start to see leukocytes dying off, we start to see that cell count come down and we see a weaker and weaker immune response. And so I think there's a place for it in managing infection During acute infection, but I wouldn't personally use it in that first initial few days, or maybe even in the first five to seven days. Now, if someone's not at least 50% better in that first week, I would then go, all right, their immune system is actually struggling to get on top of it. And it's at that point that I would personally go, mm, I might just actually help support that white blood cell production now because whatever they've got right now is not getting on top of it. And therefore, they need a bit of an extra boost. Now, Every clinician has to make their own call. Every clinician has to look at the evidence for themselves Mm. and decide what they're comfortable with. But having looked at the evidence for myself, that's where I sit um, as far as the use of Astragalus goes. Um, Do you have any strong feelings about that?
0: Well, So looking at the very small amount of data that there is on Astragalus with viral infections, um, it's, it's really interesting that it helped to stave off upper respiratory tract infections. My point, I guess, is that it is an adaptogen and therefore should only be used in those places where the chi is depleted or the qi is depleted. Yes. But yes. if they are depleted and they have an acute uh, episode, that's okay to use an adaptogenic yes. curve. They are Complete. depleted. So don't, mm. I, th- I think we've got to get away with what's acute and chronic versus the patient. We've oh, got to always yes. think about Amen. the patient.
1: Yeah, and it's always about looking at the person and that's what makes naturopathic and herbal medicine very different. You know, you're not, um, whilst you're trying to support that person with whatever condition or disease or illness or infection that they have, ultimately who you're looking after is the person that the condition has, Mm. not the condition that the person has. And that's where the skill and the subtlety has to be applied alongside whatever science can share with us as well
0: in explaining what we see that's really interesting okay yeah. Amy thank you so much for taking us through what I mean this is a very hurried podcast because there's so much, this is seminars not just one seminars mm. this is yeah. indeed learning I mean this is where we learned. so mm. thanks so much for taking us through some of the important herbs that we can use in supporting our immunity today. And, of course, teaming that up with some of the nutrients that we can use, again, to support the patient in what they present and how they can recover from illness. Thanks so much for joining us today. We're going to be taking a few questions. We've got a little bit of extra time. We're running over time, I know. But Mm -hmm. if anybody's got some pressing questions, now's the time to ask. Otherwise, we'll Mm -hmm. wrap up.
1: Yep. Awesome. And I'm not sure if I did say this uh, at the beginning of the podcast and if I did, I may as well reiterate it now anyway. Um, The way I view my prescribing protocol is nutrients first, herbs second, because even though herbs, of course, contain trace um, levels of all kinds of nutrients, when you're using nutrients for a therapeutic uh, purpose, the herb can only do so much oh. on top of a body or cells that are nutrient, replete. I guess, deficient. Well, not nutrient oh, replete. Right, I feel Yeah. And so, you know, let's say, for example, um, echinacea increases white blood cell activity. Well, if the white blood cells don't have enough vitamin C on board to do their job, well, then you're not actually the end result isn't going to be what you desire. And this is why it's best to use a combination of things that are that are really specifically chosen for the person that you're looking after. Um, I'll just have a quick look down here. I think there was a couple more questions um, about dosage for NAC. It really does depend on the patient as well. Um, but a starting dose is typically one to two hundred milligrams. As a clinician, um, I have used higher doses, much higher doses, especially if they are, you know, very congested, having trouble breathing through the nose, um, having trouble coughing anything out of the lungs. Um, Certainly, you know, 800 to a thousand milligrams is really, not yeah. outside, exactly, you know, fine. a normal recommendation. Yep. Um, time look with time, it actually depends, uh, on the first them. of all, yeah, it's quite small, but it also depends on um, what uh ratio of the tincture you've got if you're using a one to two versus a one to. Uh, you know, a two to one, for example. So I can't sort of give you an exact dosage for that, I'm afraid. Um, but it would it would w- work out to be probably ten to fifteen percent of the overall formulation if you're using a concentrated. It's a pretty form. it's a
0: pretty strong tasting and smelling herb. So um, yes, yes. You know, I mean, I I use it in smaller amounts. I I've never used it as a first like massive herb. Sure. It can yeah. can normally my yeah, yeah. one, and you know. Yes. ginger marshmallow we never spoke about marshmallow but anyway
1: yeah marshmallow is great for sore throats Mm. and that dry wild cherry
0: if you've got a cough a dry cough um and i'm not adverse to mixing herbs like um some people might have an aversion to say mixing wild cherry which is used for a dry cough um, mm-hmm. So something that you might want to inhibit versus mm. something that an expectorant like elecampane or licorice for something that you want to help move things or even indeed time. So yeah. I'm not adverse to combining those things because often you yeah. can get this thick mucus which you need breaking up. But You've got a dry mm-hmm. cough because you've got a, this, um, if you like, exposed nerves. Um, yes. Certainly, you know, as I say, you change that formulation as the patient moves through their condition, you know, particularly in post-viral mm. cough. That's just horrible to deal with, you know.
1: Yes, it's awful. Mm. Um, there's one last question here from Helene that um, I'll answer. I'll squeeze in before you wind me up. Yep. Um, wind she's up. asked with a... <laughs> Wrap it up. Gong me off. Yeah. Um, She's asked whether we would recommend taking a mixed immune herbal tincture all the time or just when something is coming on and if constantly at a lower dose. Again, it depends on the um, herbs that you've chosen. So there's something to be said. So, herbalists there there is sort of a category or an arm of herbal medicine where you might make up a constitutional tonic for someone and you might again you might tweak that week to week month to month season to season and in winter time if you know someone is prone to chesty things you might actually set them up with what you would call a herbal immune tonic which might indeed have a very low dose of astragalus some lung tonics Um, but certainly in terms of the immune stimulating herbs unless you're at a high risk occupation, I'm not a fan of those being taken constantly, um, even at low dose. Although, again, there are exceptions where that might be appropriate. So, this is where you've got to ask your practitioner. Um, for very personalized advice. Yeah, but there true. are in, indeed herbs and herbal formulations that are designed to specifically um, support your immune system, even when you're well, so that it's just slightly more ready. And this is actually where medicinal mushrooms come in. So I would really hope that you'll tune in for episode three where we talk about that because that is actually really an immune modulatory um Symphony of plant compounds that allow your immune system to be highly tuned and serviced, if you like, ready if something shows up. So, certainly the nutrients would be my primary um, recommendation, but there are some other things you could consider.
0: Yeah, I think with herbs, you know, I don't have an I don't have a uh, uh, forgive me a contraindication to using mm. immune stimulating. I have, a, I have an issue with that term, but anyway. Um, sure. <laughs> Immune stimulating herbs um, long term. My only question mm. is as the clinician, you should be asking the question, why does that patient yes. need these? And addressing huh. that, i.e., adaptogens, nutrichart. I mean, is it an iron deficiency? What's going on? Do they have a yes. you know a, a hereditary deficiency of secretory IGA? What what is going on with that patient? We should be and that, looking at yeah. their neutrophil counts. We should be assessing what's wrong with them and making a professional the uh, de, um, decision based on those on that evidence. Yeah. But Amy, thank you so much for joining us once again, and we Special. certainly look forward to chatting you chatting with you in part three. This is going to be an ongoing thing, I can tell. But in part <laughs> three, where we'll be discussing, amongst other things, medicinal mushrooms. Thanks so much for joining All us right. today on Epics Medicine.
1: Catch you then. Bye.
0: This is Epics Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield Cook.
1: can find this FX Medicine video podcast on our Facebook page. If you'd like to know more about future interactive video podcasts, please ensure you subscribe at fxmedicine.com.au.